this, this is a book, so a book begins. This is a book about the heart of Christ. Who is he? Who is he really? What is most natural to him? What ignites within him most immediately as he moves towards sinners and sufferers? What flows out most freely, most instinctively? Who is he? That's how a book begins, by the name of Gentle and Lowly. Uh, a number of you have read it, I know, in the past year. Well, at least a number of you have received it, because I've given away about 20 or 25 copies of it just myself, I think. Uh, a number of you have read it, and that's how the book begins. It's a meditation on many passages of Scripture, but particularly the impetus for the book was that statement in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And so the author of the book, Dane Ortland, notes this is the only place in Jesus' recorded ministry where he explicitly tells us about what his heart is like. And so he makes much of what we can learn about the heart of Christ from that passage in Matthew 11. Now, I would suggest to you, I think the book is great, I'm not trying to refute or contradict Dane Ortland at all, but I would suggest to you that as we open up to John chapter 17 this morning, and you can turn there in your Bibles, we are coming to a passage of Scripture that every bit as much as Matthew 11, not that you can really compare these sorts of things verse to verse, but we are about to look at and consider a passage that I believe shows us the heart of Christ every bit as much as any other passage in the Bible. Because in John chapter 17, we get to listen to Jesus pray. And really, when you hear a person pray, like I could tell you what is the thing that you most love and value and long for if I was to have access to an an audio stream of your private prayer life over the past, say, one month. Prayer is a window into the soul. It helps us to see the soul's loves and desires and ambitions. And in John chapter 17, we get to hear in an extended way, longer than any other prayer we have recorded from the Lord Jesus, we have an opportunity to lis listen to Jesus pray. He's going to tell us what's, what he's about, what's in his heart, right on the precipice of his laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. That's what lies just on the horizon as chapter 17 would turn to chapter 18, which we will come to at some later time, early next year, I think. We've been studying chapters 13 through 17, and so we've seen the instructions that Jesus has been giving to his disciples. He's been talking to his disciples about the Father, and now in chapter 17, he turns and he talks to his Father about the disciples. And so I want you to listen attentively, carefully, reverently, as I read this prayer of our Lord Jesus in John 17. And I'm especially mindful as I was reading through this passage all week of something that, uh, and I don't think I've ever said it to you. It is appropriate to say every week, but I've never said it before, but I, it especially strikes me today as I prepare to read this passage. This, what, what I'm about to do, this is the best part of the sermon. John chapter 17. 
you know what I need to pray, don't I? I need to pray before we read it because nothing's good going to come if the Lord doesn't meet us. So let me pray before I read it. Oh, Father, would you help us to, to be fed even in the reading of your word? Would you help us to know Christ and love Christ and admire Christ and be conformed to the image of Christ? Be pleased to work among us by your spirit, as we've already sung, for the glory and praise of your name. We ask this through Christ and for his glory and fame. Amen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Wow. I could just close in prayer. That's an awful lot to digest. There's a lot to see here. And I have chosen to, to take this prayer in its entirety this morning, each three sermons on this prayer. But I just want to give you a big picture. If you think of this prayer as a, as a great, expansive, let's say, art museum, you know you're not going to be able to see every, every exhibit and every painting in its exquisite detail. I just want to give you sort of a tour, a, a map of the museum, and then you can dig in there and explore as the Lord might lead you for the next week or month or decade because you won't mind the depths of it. But let me give you a, a summary. I'm going to try to summarize the prayer in a sentence, and then we'll just spend a few minutes probing at that sentence to see what we can learn from it. Jesus, in John 17, Jesus prays that his glory would be revealed throughout the world in the lives of a holy people who are united in love. I think that's how we can summarize this prayer. I'll say it again for the note takers. There's not really a, an outline of points. There's just this statement. Jesus prays that his glory would be manifested or revealed throughout the world in the lives of a holy people who are united in love. We, we see this burden in Jesus' prayer for his own glory to be revealed right there at the beginning. It's the first thing he says in prayer. Look again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, his, his speech to his disciples, when he'd spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Speaking of the hour of his crucifixion, the time of his death was imminent. And then Jesus prays, glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. This prayer reflects Jesus' mission throughout his ministry. He says there in verse 4 that he was committed to glorifying God on earth, having accomplished all the work that God had given him to do. He manifested God's name to those whom he had been given by the Father. We know that John's gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. We've beheld his glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus had, had enjoyed this glory in his father's presence even before the world existed. He had come to give eternal life to his people. Which is to know God in his glory and in his fullest. Eternal life is to know you the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so Jesus' desire 
as he anticipates the excruciating horrors that await him on the cross is that those who are his people, those who'd been given to him by the Father, that they would, as it says in verse 24, that they would see his glory. So what, what does this prayer of Jesus reveal? Right? I'm saying the prayer of Jesus teaches us about the heart of Christ. What do we learn about the heart of Christ? Well, what we learn is that he wants his glory to be praised and admired and adored. And so he prays first and foremost that he would be glorified. That word glorify or glory, that's a church word, isn't it? That's just a word we toss around that word in sermons and in songs. Kids, do you know what it, mean, what it means to glorify something? To, to glory, the glory of God re- refers to his, the word has to do with weight. That's what the Hebrew word, it has to do with weight. There's a weightiness to God, a, a majesty, a greatness, a beauty, a, a woe-ness. You ever just been somewhere in, in nature? We, we went last year, our family went to, to Ricketts Glen uh, in Pennsylvania and the waterfalls there and you just... You just get around and you see some of these waterfalls and there's just this woe in you. That woe is a glorying in something. It's marveling and admiring and esteeming the splendor and greatness of something. And Jesus is the greatest greatness. His riches, the riches of his glory are unsearchable. And so he prays that his glory would be seen, that he would be exalted. It's not just lofty theology the glory of God. This is a very practical thing because this explains the reason why you're alive. There's nothing more practical than that. Why are you alive? Like, why are we here? What's this day for? God's word says, Romans eleven thirty six, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And I wonder, I wonder if you can sincerely give your amen to that doxology. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's what Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Can you give your amen to that? Do you join with Jesus in wanting in yearning for, in praying for the hallowing of his name in all the earth. That is how he taught his, this is not just the way Jesus prays, this is the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you pray that way? Is that the dominant burden of your praying? Of your praying for yourself, of your praying if you have one for your spouse or your children, In all the world, in your own heart and life, oh, Father, hallow your name. To to become a Christian, to be born again, Jesus speaks earlier in John's gospel of being born again. Apart from being born again, born from above, no one can see the kingdom of God. Being born again is a change. What takes place is a change at the, at the root, at the foundation of what it is that you love and that you are living for. 
If you are here this morning visiting among us, and you consider yourself to be a Christian, I don't know you, visitor, I'm not saying you aren't a Christian, but I want to make sure if you're a visitor among us today, that you understand that what makes a Christian a Christian is not just that you come to church on Sundays, it's not just that you like hearing sermons about Jesus or singing songs to Jesus. It is to be a Christian is to have a fundamental reorientation in the deepest loves and desires of your heart because the love of self, love for him, love for his renown, the main allegiance and the main passion of your heart is no longer yourself But it is the priorities of God. It is the fame of God, the renown of his glorious name. Jesus died for all, we're told, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for their sake was raised. And so God's word commends to us that we live the entirety of our lives as an expression of worship. We do gather specially together for worship, but the entirety of our lives is to be lived with this direction and this orientation on God being praised. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so Jesus prays for that. We're still thinking here about verse 1. But I'm really bleeding into the, the part that I, of this summary that I gave to you. Jesus is praying that his glory would be revealed throughout the world in the lives of a holy people. I told you there's not really a firm, I'm not, I'm not really, I don't have points. So I'm talking to you about this name of God, glory of God being revealed But I'm talking now as I'm pressing in about doing all to the glory of God, I'm pressing now into this burden that Jesus has that we be a holy people, that he be revealed, that his glory be spreading in a holy people. Because that really is the essence of holiness, is that we be devoted to the glory of God. So you could ask, how devoted are you? I know this is not a quantifiable thing. There's no a score, like you get a grade on a test or something about how holy you are. You got a 94 this week. It's not like that. But the measure of a person's holiness is the measure of their devotion to the glory of God. That's what Psalm 96, if you remember back in the call to worship, it said, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God will be glorified. Jesus' glory will be seen throughout the world in a holy people. And what does that mean exactly? Okay, devotion to God's glory. What does it mean to be a holy people? Well, I want to read for you something from an Anglican bishop from the 19th century named J.C. Ryle. Uh, He wrote a book called Practical Religion. Really good book. I commend it to you if you want to dig more into thinking about this. But he has a chapter in in the book on zeal. And he talks about a zealous man. And I believe what he says about being a zealous man is exactly what it is to be a holy man or woman or child. So he says this, a zealous man, and ladies, don't be discouraged that he's he's a man, okay? So he, he doesn't mean you're excluded from this. A zealous man in religion 
is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he's rich or whether he's poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he's thought wise or whether he's thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. That is what it means to be holy. And we can pursue holiness. We are called to be holy in all of our conduct. First Peter Chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All your conduct. That means you've got a purpose in all of life. You are never just folding laundry. You are never just correcting a, or disciplining a little child. You're never just teaching a class. You're never just going into the office to get some work done. You're, you're never just having a bad day, enduring chronic pain, or maybe trudging through a difficult patch in your marriage, or insert any other kind of pain or hardship that you may be enduring. You're never just eating and drinking. No, you are called to be holy in all of your conduct. And so Jesus prays for that. Everything, everywhere, you have the opportunity and the privilege of joining with the Lord himself, co-laboring with God himself in his eternal agenda of making a name for himself. Reflecting light on the God who is infinitely glorious and worthy of praise. And so Jesus prays that his glory would be revealed in a holy people. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Verse 19. For their sake, Jesus says, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. To sanctify, the reason why I keep, you say, you're talking about a holy people. The word holy didn't come up once in maybe holy father, but he doesn't speak of his people in John 17 as a holy people, but this word sanctification is the word, to sanctify means to make holy. Those words are interchangeable in the original language. To, to consecrate, to, to devote or to set apart for God and for his purposes. So when, when Jesus prays that his people would be sanctified, he's praying that his people would be completely devoted to him, that they would be set apart for him, that they would be committed to his holy purposes. I, I bet if I was, I bet if I asked you to do word association, 
and I said the, na- the word holy, I'm not going to ask you to do this because then it might, it might not go the way I was thinking it would go, but I, I think what you would say, what, mo- what would be the word I'd get back most when I say holy, tell me what word comes to mind, would be the word pure. Yes, no, maybe, okay, you're all looking at me, I don't know. It, and it is purity, but it is specifically one's purity of their devotion to God. And that's what he's praying for. That we would be, that his people would be a holy people. Now we could spend, I told you, this is a museum. We could just spend, there's, there's a series of sermons here about all that Jesus says about the holiness of his people. But I just want to take, I just want to give you a little tour of some of the rooms and you can maybe visit them if you want on your own time. And I'd be happy to commend to you some resources to help you to do that. But we could consider the origin of sanctification in the fathers giving a particular group of people to the son who he is praying for and keeping and consecrating for himself. Look there at verse 6. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He, he, the father gave Jesus a people not of the world. He said, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He actually says here, Shocking statement. I wonder if it, was, if it struck you in verse 9 there. He says, I'm not praying for the world. But I'm praying for the ones you gave me out of the world. Because they're yours and you've given them to me. And I'm praying for them. And for them is I'm consecrating myself. There's, a, there's an exhibit there. I have a 700-page book on it if you want. It's called From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. It's in my office. If so, I'm saying it's a big museum. We could consider the security of this sanctification. Just as Jesus acknowledged that he had kept his own there in verse 12. And he's asking the Father to continue to keep them. And we know the Father does not turn a deaf ear to the prayers of his Son. And so God himself will completely sanctify you, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He will completely sanctify his people. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it because he is the God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Your sanctification is secure. If you're one of those whom the Father gave to the Son, your sanctification is secure. It is secure. But it's not static. He uses means to bring about that sanctification. And the chief means that he uses, the chief instrument of sanctification that he refers to there in John 17, verse 17, is his word, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word trains us for righteousness. God's word sets us free from the deceiving and enslaving pleasures of sin. And so we are a people who are sanctified by the truth of God's word. I don't know if if you've been aware of this the last few weeks, but since I came back from vacation, I've made a conscious commitment to bombard you with more of God's word when I'm up here. I, I, I didn't hear criticism of that from anybody in particular, but I was just convicted while I was away on vacation. There's ways I could just put more. I have 45 minutes maybe with you in a week. You have the whole world, and I'm not saying, I'm, I know you do the Bible, and you do prayer, and you do that on your own, but I got 45 minutes with you. I'm just convicted I need to give you more Bible because, because my personal anecdotes and illustrations about my life and my energy and volume, that is not going to change you. It's not going to sanctify you. Now, we can still use, I'm not saying you can't use an illustration, 
illustrations in sermons are good. They maybe help you to engage a little bit longer to hear the truth and be changed by the truth. So I'm not saying I'm done with them forever, but it's God's word that changes us. We could consider, oh boy. They were checking us out back there. I was wondering if maybe they were going to stop and listen to sanctification in the silver car. Sorry. The things I see back here, you know. We could consider the aroma of sanctification. I'm using the aroma there to speak of that joy that Jesus speaks of in verse 13. I'm speaking for your joy. Do not ever get the impression that holiness is a drab, dreary kind of thing. You know God, what God's word said is of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, that to Jesus, has, he's been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions. And Jesus says he wants to share. He's speaking his word so that his joy would be fulfilled in the lives of his holy people. We do not need to be ashamed. We do not need to be embarrassed about pursuing holiness and calling one another to sanctification. It's for our joy that we be a people purely devoted to Christ. We could consider the environment of sanctification, which is being in the world. Right? Jesus speaks much of that in verses 15 and following, that we're not of the world, but we're still in the world. That's why we need special protection, because the evil one is after us, and the world hates us because we're not of the world, but we live out this sanctification in the world. We have been rescued from the world in order that we might proclaim his excellencies in the world, and that others may, by seeing our good works, give glory to our Father in heaven. It's this in-the-world aspect of our salvation that is what fuels our commitment to foreign missions, right? Jesus came as the Father's ambassador on mission to seek and to save the lost. And so it is our desire, being sent in Jesus' name, to spread the glory of Jesus and to spread the renown of Jesus to all the ends of the earth, whether that is in India or in Bosnia or in Central Asia or in the Middle East or in Mexico, we want to support. We want to send people. We want to support those who are doing that. I, I, just, I just saw a tweet this past week uh, that not, there's a publication by Nine Marks called Word Centered Church, and I saw it was just published in Arabic. And you know, I, members, you know, we, were talk, we talked about this. We had surplus money last year. We gave a contribution to Nine Marks, and we, we earmarked that particularly for the translation of materials. And so I was so excited, this book, Word-Centered Church, which maybe only a handful of you have read in this, in this auditorium right now, but this book that talks about building lives and churches on the ministry of God's Word is published so that Arabic-speaking countries and pastors and churches can be built up with the truth of God's Word. And I trust there will be joy in heaven. There will be glorification of Jesus in heaven amongst us and some people from the Middle East that we've never heard of, never known of, never seen of, but we will be praising the lamb that was slain together because we made a contribution in those who are seeking to translate materials to the ends of the earth. We're in the world, and we're called to live this sanctification out in the world on mission. Now, I just said I was, I'm just giving you a tour, but we must consider in at least for a few minutes the price of sanctification, which is right there in verse 19, for their sake... To make this people a holy people, a sanctified people, Jesus says he would consecrate himself. I think this is, this is really the most important thing there is to say about Jesus' prayer for a holy people. 
and for sanctification in general, that that sanctification is rooted and grounded in Christ. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. How did Jesus consecrate himself? Well, he consecrated himself by giving himself fully and wholly to be obedient to his Father's will, and especially that saving will that he had towards his people. Jesus consecrated himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death and death on the cross. The death of Jesus was needed for each of us and for our sanctification because all of us have preeminently been a man or woman of one thing and that one thing has been ourselves. We have been devoted supremely and this is true of every one of us in this auditorium right now. We have been devoted supremely to our own way. And our lives have proclaimed, whether we've actually verbally articulated this or not, our lives have proclaimed, from me and through me and to me are all things. To me be glory forever. We have treated him, our maker, as worthless, as a matter of indifference. Instead of treating him as though he is worthy of our total devotion. And this settled devotion to ourselves, if you're visiting with us and you've not heard much Christian talk or Christian sermons, this devotion to ourselves is what the Bible calls sin. And the penalty for that perverse devotion to ourselves is death. Not only physically, but spiritually in eternal conscious torment in hell. And this is a situation in which the punishment surely does fit the crime for a human being to look upon his maker or her maker and to dismiss him from the throne of the universe and seek to rule in his place, refusing to acknowledge him and giving him the glory for the inestimable gifts that he has lavished upon you but instead to question and grumble whenever his ways do not conform to yours This is an outrageous injustice that is deserving of the strongest and fiercest punishment imaginable. And yet it's for such people as these, people like you and me, for whom Christ consecrated himself. He came willingly to bear the sins of his people, to endure God's righteous wrath against sin, standing in our place and then rising victoriously on the third day in triumph over death in order to cleanse and sanctify a people who would be renewed in purity and devotion to him. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If you're with us today and you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, I would urge you to do that today.
Maybe you would wonder, how can I know? You're speaking of this number the Father gave the Son, a, a people. How do I know if I'm one of those people? What if he didn't die for me? Well, there is a way. The Bible says very clearly there is a way that you can know that you're one of the people who the Father gave to the Son. And you know what that way is? It's believing in him right now. It is coming to him and relying upon him and resting in him and devoting yourself to him, turning away from your sin, confessing your sin to him, and relying fully on his sacrifice. And if you would do that today, you can know the eternal love of God for you in Christ. I'd invite you to, to receive Christ today and join him in his mission of exalting himself. We'd love to talk with you about how we could help you to do that. Brothers and sisters, I know most of you have made that commitment. And it's that being made holy in Christ, being sanctified once for all time by the sacrifice of Jesus, it's that sanctifying work that he's already done for us on the cross that fuels our ongoing pursuit of holiness right now today. Again, I don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed about calling you to a holy life because it's for your joy. And so God's word says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Brothers and sisters, is there anything in the way of your holiness? Anything polluting you? Anything defiling your devotion to Christ and his will? Anything that's encouraging you to think less of the gospel or, or less of the, the filth and the repulsiveness of sin? Anything making you think that hell is less horrible than it really is or that heaven is less enthralling than it really is or that obedience to Jesus is less serious and less joyful than it really is? Any, any music, any movies, any idle uses of your time that would diminish your awareness of the urgency of the time that you have? Any relationships that are encouraging you to have less zeal for Christ or to be content with less of his word and less prayer or to think less of his church? And the unity that we enjoy together by the Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, if there's anything like that, cut it off. Cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of you. Gouge out an eye, Jesus says, if you would need to. He doesn't mean self-mutilation, literally. If you have questions about that, talk to me afterwards. I'll be roaming around. But gouge out an eye, cut off a hand if you must. Strive, the writer of Hebrews tells us, strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm, I'm belaboring this. Oh boy, <laughs> my time is running. You know, it's two minutes uh, earlier on this clock here than it is in your, on your clocks. I've seen that. I've observed that over the months. I'm belaboring this, beloved, because in this most beautiful and breathtaking moment of Jesus' ministry, what he's praying about, what he's asking the Father to do is make you holy. Do you want for yourself what Jesus wants for you? Do you pray for yourself and for others what Jesus prays for you? 
Jesus prays that his glory would be manifested throughout the world in the lives of a holy people who are united in love. And I should say something, shouldn't I, about that little last phrase, united in love. I know we're getting late, and I will try to be as brief as I can. Kids, you're doing a great job. Hang in there. Now, you can start counting the word love. If you were counting the word holy, I'm not going to say the word holy very much anymore, but you could count for a few minutes the word love. Jesus prays that his people would be united in love. We see that towards the end of the prayer. Look, look again at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Clearly, he wants them to be one. And we know from, the, from all the rest of the prayer that this oneness is rooted in truth. It's rooted in the truth of God's word. It's rooted in the truth of the glorious salvation that his people have received in Christ. It's a unity that reflects God's own oneness in the, the Trinitarian fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we could dig into the nuances of that. And again, I'm happy to commend resources to you if you want to do that more. But I'm just burdened to remind you that this unity that Jesus died to give us and prayed so earnestly for us, this unity is very fragile in these deeply divided times in which we live. And the Lord, the Lord has been, from my vantage point, he has been remarkably good to us as a congregation in this past year especially. And we have been protected from the strife and the contempt that has marked our nation and that even has marked many churches in the past year over matters of race and ethnicity, over matters of systemic injustice, over disputed elections and mask mandates and appeals for vaccinations. And I praise God for that unity. I'm saying what I'm about to say not really as a corrective word, but as a protecting word. Because we have known peace and we have unity, but we must not presume upon that. We must protect it. We must guard it. We can't presume upon it because we know that there is an evil one. Jesus speaks of him there in verse 15. There is the evil one, Satan, the devil. He's real. We'll be thinking about him in some detail in the fall, Lord willing. Ephesians 6, that's where we're going to be, Lord willing, September, October, November, armor of God. That's why I'm saying that. He's real and he hates you and he hates our church. He hates all churches, and he would love to tear us apart and divide us over a bunch of stuff that is far less significant than the oneness that we have in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus prays for his people to be united in love. And part of the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross mindful of was the joy of uniting a group of people, a diverse group of people who might testify to the world of God's love in the way that we experience oneness and love and unity in the church. And so Paul the Apostle says, as a prisoner of the Lord, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, beloved, in these days of fragile peace, remember your calling. Remember your calling. Remember that you were dead in your sin. You were following after the devil, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. You were a child of wrath. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. And remember that you who were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You haven't just been brought near. You've actually been brought in. You have been brought into the fellowship of the Trinity through the sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus and remember this that it was nothing in you it was not your take on all things related to COVID it was not your savvy mining of the internet and figuring out this particular take that is different than that other person on the other side of this auditorium it was nothing about that it is not your stance on vaccinations it is not whether you watch Fox News or CNN or you don't watch news at all it was nothing distinctive in you that made God set his love upon you that was all grace that was all his sovereign mercy he has mercy on whom he has mercy And he did not consult anything in your notebook to decide whether he would set his love upon you. It is all of grace. He is the one, by his grace alone, who has overcome that conflict, that alienation and estrangement that we had known with him. And and knowing that, that really shuts down conflict in the church big time. When you know that, we're going to disagree about some things. That's, we're going to disagree about some things in the news, no doubt about that. But, when, but that, that eye roll that you have towards that other person that thinks differently about that hot button issue, maybe you don't let them see the eye roll, but you do the eye roll when you walk away, or you do the eye roll in your heart. That eye roll, that's not from the Holy Spirit. That is not from the Holy Spirit, I could tell you. So when you're tempted to look down upon a brother or sister in this congregation, I, I, let me just run. Not mainly a corrective word here, a protective word. When you're tempted to look down upon a brother or sister in this congregation, to think maliciously about them, maybe to judge them in your heart, go back to the cross on which the Prince of Glory died and count your richest gain to be lost and pour contempt on all your pride and say, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. There is no cause of conflict greater than the cause of conflict that we had with the Lord. And if the cross of Jesus Christ could solve that conflict between a rebellious, obstinate people and the holy God of the universe, it surely can solve the problems that we're going to meet with one another in the church. Above all, brothers and sisters, I say it with apostolic authority, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love 
covers a multitude of sins. That's how we show the world something different than all the rancor and hostility and venom we see all too much around us. Here, here in the church, Paul says, there's neither Greek and Jew, there's neither circumcised and uncircumcised, there are neither barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. I dare might even say, there are no vaccinated and unvaccinated. But Christ is all and in all. And when we are captivated by the beauty of this man, Jesus, we will dwell richly in love with one another. May it be so for us. May it continue to be so. For the glory and praise of his name. Love you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this window into his heart seeing how he prays for us, seeing what he wants for us. We know we are unworthy. We know we can't produce holiness on our own. But we thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. We pray that you'd make us more and more a holy people who are united in love, that we might play our part in revealing your glory to the world. We love you. We desire to exalt you. Make us more in our experience of what you have already made us to be in Christ. We ask for this in his name. Amen.